this equation causes manslaughter Torture upon a microphone with the type of poem That strikes like a poem with a baseball bat Why waste the track? I'm better than all of that Become awake and chop the heads of these snakes It's better off than dying in a pit full of snakes Mistake inside yourself that be the first head you take It's better off than dying in a pit full of snakes Become awake and chop the heads of these snakes It's better off than dying in a pit full of snakes Mistake inside yourself that be the first head you take It's better off than dying in a pit full of snakes Hello and welcome to episode 832 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello, Sam. Yo. Doing the Diamondbacks preview today, so later on in the show, you will hear Jeff Paternostro talk to our friend Mike Farron, who is doing pre- and post-game hosting for the Diamondbacks this year, as well as his duties for MLB Network Radio on SiriusXM. But before that, we have the pleasure of talking to another friend and frequent guest of this podcast, Zachary Levine. Hey, Zachary. How's it going? All right. And you wrote this year's Diamondbacks essay, and this essay had... Everything I want from a BP annual essay, I think. It had three tables full of numbers. It had a reference to fastballs the way. So that's <laughs> that's what I want to see when I flip to pretty much every annual essay. Brought, Plus, you, brought you right back to 1998, huh? Yeah, well, probably like yesterday was the last time I, I listened to that song. <laughs> <laughs> so... You make a convincing case that the Diamondbacks have, over the last decade, sort of fast-forwarded through everything a team can do with more or less success, depending on the year. But they've sort of been everything at some particular time. They've rebuilt. They've been good. They've been bad. They've had long-term plans. They've had short-term plans. So do you see a clear progression here? Is there something that ties all these different Diamondbacks phases together? No, I don't I don't think of it really as a progression. I think of it more as just kind of reacting to the circumstances. And I don't mean to say that like it's a bad thing, like they're not, you know, thinking more than a year ahead, because clearly some of the times they have been, but I think they're they're a team that frequently take stock of where it is, you know, what the division around them looks like, uh, what their roster looks like. Are they in a position to, uh, you know, build this thing up and compete? I think there's a there's a real argument that if they had won, say, 64 games last year instead of 79 with a, a positive run differential, that this kind of offseason doesn't happen. So I think they're just a, a team that reevaluates itself on a, on a much quicker cycle than anybody else. And, and whether that's, uh, you know, just the personality of ownership or whether, and maybe we can talk about this later, but, you know, some, some aspect of the division they're in or something like that. I, I just think they do, they operate on a, on a much quicker cycle of, of looking at who they are. And you sort of place them in this lineage of teams that splurge in an off season, quote unquote, won the off season. And we'll talk about that a little more, but how surprising is it that the Diamondbacks joined that club? Yeah, I, I sort of, I, I defined it a little bit differently in the essay than I think, uh, I know you guys were talking about it on the show the other day about the team that won the offseason, and, and I'm not convinced they won the offseason. I think there's an argument to be made that maybe the Cubs did. Mm-hmm. But I described them as this this surprise team that just kind of spends money you know, out of nowhere, I think I described it as. And you know, we've seen it be the Padres, we've seen it be the White Sox, we saw it as the the 2012 Marlins 
and there's been this team every year. And I guess I'm not that surprised that it's Arizona. Um, it tends to be a team that, you know, has something that they're shooting for that's maybe not attainable through a, a steady rebuild, whether it's a, a team like the Giants or the Dodgers all the way at the top. Or a, a farm system that's not gonna just if you let it play out for a couple of years, not gonna gonna really make it to a point where it's it's gonna be a competitive team grown from within. And and a lot of the other factors were there. I mean, they have the the new TV deal. Uh, they had a, a very competitive team last year. They have a star in his prime, whose prime you don't want to waste. So I, I think there were a lot of factors there that that made them a uh, sort of not that surprising a team to be the surprise team, if you know what I mean. So I don't know if you've, you probably haven't been following this because uh, you probably don't have a Google news alert for this particular phrase, but um, the Diamondbacks have uh, been trying to uh, to get some of that Pakota hate love. You know, like uh, Dave Stewart and, and Tony La Russa have both been talking about how uh, they find, well, let's see, Dave Stewart, I think, called it called projections generally. It was unclear whether he was talking about all projections or or one because uh, sometimes he would use a plural noun and sometimes he wouldn't. But he called it a joke and Tony La Russa had this quote, which is the one that actually interests me a lot more. I don't care, whatever, about Dave Stewart, whatever about Tony La Russa. But this quote is really fascinating to me. So I'm gonna read this quote. If you're a company that is promoting the legitimacy of the tool and the formulas that you depend on come up that we're going to win one less than we won, don't you think maybe this dot, 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 Tony Russa said, trailing off incredulously. Look, we may lose 10 more. Who knows? But we're certainly a better team. And this to me, I uh, spent a long time thinking about this, uh, the, the sort of not of what the naughtiness of what he was saying. He's basically acknowledging that you could lose 10 more than your true talent level, right? When he says we may lose 10 more, who knows, but we're certainly a better team. So he's acknowledging that you can be 10 wins off your true talent level. And yet he is using last year's win total as the baseline for what they were working with instead of acknowledging that maybe they had a 69 win team last year that overperformed at certain key positions. And that is like you you pointed out the run differential and it was a legitimate 79 wins. Like probably they could have won a couple more uh, given their runs scored and runs allowed. But the question isn't, did they earn that 79? It was, is this really truly a 79-win team? And that's the big question. And that's, I guess, Pakoda says no. And I guess we'll ask you later to tell us what you think. But were they actually the team we thought they were going into last season? They were a little bit better and in a little different way. And, and when I hear 10 wins, I can, you know, without much effort, I can go find them. I can go say, David Peralta last year 4.7 wins above replacement player i'm not convinced he's a five win guy i mean he's a very good player but this was you know his first full full showing in the major leagues so you know who knows if that's him pakota projects him this year i'm just i'm looking at the book for 2.9 so there's two wins there uh aj pollock 5.4 win player last year really good player not an out of nowhere guy uh you know was a high uh a high draft pick and you know, has a certainly some pedigree, but we project him 2.6 wins lower to uh, 2.8 this year. And then, you know, MVP type season from Paul Goldschmidt, uh, 9.2 wins. I know it was a sort of a tough year to win the MVP last year, and, and he finished uh, about where he should. But, you know, we project him for 6.2 wins. Obvious all-star player. 
just not in his peak peak year. So there, I, you know, I found seven and a half, eight wins right there in three and, guys. And there's a there's a big one too that is also easy to add, and that's Ender Inciarte. Oh sure, yep, yeah, the the actual departure. Yeah. So I mean, uh, you know, they add Granky and they add uh, you know, and they add Miller and they add Segura. But uh, yeah, I mean, you can very like you're saying, you can very easily find ten or eleven that they have to make up just to hold steady, and that's more or less what Pakoda is expecting from them. Right, and and there are places where they'll, you know, that to be fair, there are places where they will have some bounce back. Starting, uh, you got to think in the middle of the infield, you know, even though they're uh, they're, I, I'm not a huge fan of uh, of Segura in the middle of the infield. But yeah. do you think there's an average player in that infield other than Goldschmidt, yeah, who yeah. is you know amazing, or on the team? <laughs> there are some outfielders, but well, no, I mean Pollock and Peralta are above average, and Tomas is maybe a disaster. Right, yeah, but I mean, what yeah. are we doing with with Jake Lamb? I mean, he might be the the closest. I guess, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Lamb, Castillo catching yeah. Segura at second, and whether it's Owings or Ahmed at shortstop, none of those players. <laughs> I see. Like, I you so you're saying that they have below average at all? I thought you were saying that they are all that they're like the most boomer bust lineup in the league which i think is true yeah. and, and has been acknowledged i what i was saying is that nobody is actually at average they have people who are much better i see people who are oh, no, yeah and, that, and that's what i'm saying too i just i wonder if, if lamb might be the closest mm-hmm. before we move on from that of pollock peralta goldschmidt three you know kind of very good players in pakota's reckoning a superstar for goldschmidt but all regression candidates of those three is there one that you kind of least uh, go along with pakota or you think that there's the best reason to think that it's not legit and you know people will make arguments for for all three of those as people will always uh is there one that you really buy is there one where i really buy their two to three win drop no that you buy the buy their last season's total yeah that you buy the argument that 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 pakoda is not sophisticated enough to uh pick up on the true change in their their ability i guess it would be pollock that you know he had his his age 27 season last year and you get some credit for center field which will still be there and and he can hit I, i guess i would say I mean, he was a little bit, he was somewhat BABIP driven, but, you know, I, I think that he would probably be the close, the guy I would say is the is the closest to thinking he'll repeat that. It's just, it's impossible to, I mean, Goldschmidt is obviously a, an incredible player. It's it's hard to predict a repeat of a nine win season. We've, we've seen that so few times, but uh, I, I guess of the three, uh, Pollock, the likeliest, Goldschmidt, the second likeliest, Peralta, the third likeliest. And as you pointed out in your essay with those three guys, the Diamondbacks have shown this ability to develop guys who weren't really top prospects into star players. And I don't know whether this means that it's more advisable for them to keep trading away their top prospects because they have this ability to just make their non-prospects into stars or whether it says that they're just good at developing players across the board and therefore it makes even less sense for them to keep trading you know number one picks and and top draft picks as they do do you lean one way or the other yeah it sure seems to make it more justifiable i think yeah that they have a a history of being able to do this from from guys who were either late round or or not um top prospects and, and they've lived through the other too i mean i remember writing a, a lineup card like a, a year or two ago where we talked about the biggest thing we were wrong on about baseball in, in our memory. And <laughs> I remember I wrote like 10 years ago, I think 2006, I thought the Diamondbacks would be the best team in baseball for the next 10 years. 
just because of you know they had they had Brandon Webb in his very short prime and, and they had a team that was about to contend for an NLS title and they just had an unbelievable stack of prospects you know they had I think like six in the top 50 plus uh, the few honorable mentions that BP did at the time when it was a top 50 so um, they've kind of done it the other way too where they've had the top prospects and and never really made a you know a dynasty a sustained run out of it they were kind of back to being being one of the worst teams after a short while. So the fact that I can certainly see the justification for why they've done it. You know, I, I still lean to the the side of get the most you can out of every transaction. And, you know, even if it's at the sort of, um, you know, without every one of them fitting a, a pattern or something like that, I'm fine with a team trading away one number one pick for value and holding on to another one because they can't get value. But I would tend to think that that um, this is a place where maybe they're coming from, where maybe this does influence the way they think about their team. And I, I can't tell how many wins they've cost themselves thus far by making moves that the internet has hated. I don't I don't know whether they would be a better team now or better positioned for the future. All the the long line of surprising and baffling moves that they made, going back to you know Upton or all the moves they made in that offseason, and then, of course, the more recent Braves trades, which haven't really had time to hurt them yet. I'm not sure. It's, it, you can't really look at those trades and say, well, if they hadn't made these moves, they would be set right now. They'd be the best team in the division or something. Is it too soon to say that that they have made themselves worse, that all the moves that we hated were actually terrible? Yeah, I don't think we can say that. And And so much of it is that even if the players wash, what you do get is an opportunity to try new guys and bring up your your players from the system, let them play. Like, and the other one I would add to that is, you know, we all thought Trevor Bauer might be the best pitcher yeah. in baseball by by this point, and was a you know a, a certainly a risky guy, uh, the kind of guy that can make you look terrible for trading him. But uh, that's been you know a nothing event for them. So, yeah, I, I think. They have they have survived it. I don't know if that makes us reevaluate what we thought of their reasoning. You know whether we can we can still look back and say on the the eve of the trade is this a better move now or just this is how these have happened to work out. You know I, I'm not in love with the things that they did uh, this off season on the the, the Miller trade uh, or anything like that. But no, I, I don't think this is a team where where you could say if they held on to everybody they would be be National League West champions or anything like that. They are, they're in a fine position. They've gotten, uh, they've gotten guys to be able to step up and step in. And I think some of the positions they traded from, you know, maybe Didi Gregorius might have been, been one who they could have maybe used last year or something like that. But uh, and maybe saved them something this off season. But 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 beyond that, I don't think it's been a, a total disaster. And I don't even, you know, I don't even know if that's that's one that that we count as as thinking was a, a train wreck. That top fifty, by the way, I also remember thinking like there was that was that was the other than maybe the Royals of two thousand eleven or whatever. That's like maybe the most stacked I've ever seen a farm system. So they had Chris Young, they had Carlos Gonzalez, Connor Jackson, Carlos Quentin, Stephen Drew, Justin Upton, Miguel Montero, Alberto Cayaspo. All right, go on, move on, everybody, move on. <laughs> Um, as you mentioned in the essay, this is a really young team. Other than Tuffy Ghostwitch, there's no one who's close to 30 even really. I guess Wellington Castillo is going to turn 29 pretty soon. 
So it seems like in a lot of the stuff that's been written about the Diamondbacks this offseason, the idea has been that they have to win in the next couple of years because things are going to get expensive and people are going to get arbitration raises and Granky has deferred money and all of that. And the Diamondbacks have never been a top tier payroll team. And so it seems like they have to make these next few years count. And yet they are still really, really young, which normally would make you think that they're just at the beginning, the top of, you know, not even the top of their arc. So at what, what, stage on the the wind curve or the competitive cycle do you see them i think they have a a few years um it's funny that you don't think of them really as a young team i was very surprised when i researched this and and found this and you know playing with the numbers a little bit looking at teams that had their all five of their starters and all of their position players 28 and under they were one of like seven teams in the last 50 years to to have that and and granted, that doesn't mean they had the lowest average, and some could have had all, all but one under 25 and then one 29-year-old and thrown the whole thing. So it's a little fun with numbers, but you know, you, you don't think of them as a young team, and, and I think a lot of that's no top prospects. It's guys who you know have either some guys we've seen for a while, some guys who came up and uh, weren't names you'd, you'd heard about forever. But I think they have a couple of years. I think there's going to be more... Uh, there could be more investment into this team if uh, they they certainly have the money with this TV deal. And, you know, I think the pitching staff is going in the right direction uh, in addition to uh, to what they've they've done on the field. They have a few holes that they'll have to fill. But, you know, I think that they are certainly headed toward a few years where they should be competitive. Now, so much of that has to do with where this division goes. And, and one of the things, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not a coincidence that the last couple teams we've seen do this push all in have been the Padres and Arizona, is that I think that the Dodgers and the Giants are seen as this big obstacle, whereas if you were in the, you know, if you're in the AL West or something, a division that's, that's looked a little bit flatter over the last couple of years, or, or even in the, the AL East, we haven't seen a ton of this recently. The Giants and the Dodgers are teams that, that, it, that teams feel like they have to make an active push to try to get over. And, and we certainly see that with the National League and the American League, that the, the National League has these elite teams in place and the American League is, is much more fluid. So, you know, I think contention over the next few years is possible, but uh, they might be a little handicapped at the top of that division. Did you read any of the TikTok accounts of how the Granky signing came together? It, a little bit. It, yeah, it was, it yeah. was striking how, how quickly it happened, how surprised members of the front office seemed to be as it was happening. I don't know whether that just sort of, you know, is another example of the Diamondbacks kind of being mercurial over the past few years. But it seems like, you know, if you're going to spend that much on Greinke, you would sort of expect it to be the plan from the start. Like when you had your organizational meetings right after the playoffs or what, or after the season, you'd say, okay, we're going after Greinke. That's the centerpiece of our offseason. And that doesn't at all seem to be what happened. And yet it made sense in some ways. Obviously, the pitching was a huge weakness for them and they robbed him from division rivals. So I don't know whether the way that it came together should make a Diamondbacks fan more or less confident about the way that the team is run. Yeah. And and the part that I wonder about even more than that is, and, and related to that is whether 
they panicked on a second piece, whether they said we're spending all this money on Grinky, who might not get us all the way there. I, I haven't seen a lot of the TikTok of how the Shelby Miller deal came down and, and whether uh, whether that was something where they said, well, we need another guy to, to make this push because what good is spending all these millions of dollars if uh, if it's only going to get us halfway there? So. Uh, yeah, the, the Grinky thing, reading that definitely uh, definitely surprised me. It was tremendous reporting on that. And then uh, just the way the, the offseason came together after that, that if you make that move, you now say, well, now we need a plan. Now we need an offseason. And, you know, it's getting, a, getting another starter, getting a, a shortstop. I don't know how much of those were related to the fact that, hey, this guy who maybe we didn't expect to get either – fell in our lap or we can't believe the Dodgers didn't match it or, or whatever. And now we need uh, we need a full plan. Do you think there's always going to be a Dave Stewart in baseball? Not not Dave Stewart himself, but someone who is outspoken, a baseball executive who is outspoken and sometimes adopts this sort of adversarial stance toward progressive analysis. I, I've been wondering whether this is just an endangered species that will always exist but be endangered or whether it will actually go extinct at some point because we've seen you know one by one these sort of regimes that become punchlines on twitter one by one they you know do the phillies kind of transformation where the old gm goes and then the new gm is just another gm from the same homogenous background as all the other gms and hires the same sort of people and says the same sort of uncontroversial things. And yet it seems like every time one of those teams makes that transition, there is another team that emerges as this sort of standard bearer of the old guard in a sense. Do you think there will always be one? Is it like, you know, when every other team is in lockstep, there's some benefit to that 30th team to be different? Or do you think eventually we will get to a point where no baseball executive ever says anything interesting? No, I think someone will always be behind. I just, I think the likeliest outcome here is that we just recalibrate. Is uh-huh. that a, you know, a, a Jeff Luno or a, a David Stearns or, a, you know, pick your progressive GM, the way they are now will be the 10 years behind everybody in 10 years. Um, <laughs> That, you know, they'll be the only ones not doing brain experiments on their players and, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that's progress. That we will key that, you know, I don't know what Dave Stewart, if he had the analytics department that they have there or, you know, I, I don't know the exact workings of, of how much science they're using, whether what that would have looked like 10 years previous. So I, I think the, the we'll recalibrate, the goalposts will keep moving and there will always be somebody behind. I don't I don't think it will necessarily be a competitive advantage. I just think that it's uh, you have 30 of these guys and, and some some teams and some people are slow to adopt. And there will be some benefit in that person's other skills that if they were to have the complete package, would obviously be be preferred, but uh, there's going to be enough benefit in those other skills that the, that some team will think they're valuable even without whatever is the latest. This is when somebody has to point out, in fairness, that uh, two of the recent examples of that guy graduated not because they were fired, but because they won World Series in San Francisco and Kansas City. Uh, mm-hmm. So sometimes yeah. they just sometimes <laughs> they just win and we all shut up. Can I make an observation about that guy though? I don't think I've ever really noticed this, but it seems like what makes that guy that guy is not just that he's 
less on board with the whole uh, you know computer thing. But also usually that he's outspoken. Yeah. He's he's always aggrieved. It always feels like like the it's Kevin not towers. Mom. Right. Like it's always like there's a it's like he has tinnitus and the computer brings it out <laughs> or something, you know, like like there's something like there's just something always annoyed about <laughs> him. And you think about like these GMs that we think of as being a little, you know, behind and they also are, you know, sheriff types. And then you think about the GMs that we think of as being savvy or whatever word you want to use. And they always seem to be very message disciplined. And uh, I guess that's just an observation uh, in search of a hypothesis uh, as to what it all means. But it's sort of interesting, isn't it? Like, isn't it? I guess it's what's weird is that boring and stat head have become kind of entangled without it actually being a requirement that they be. Yeah, and, and I don't know how much of that is that aggrieved is pushing back on, you know, whatever our grievances are and, and that the environment creates that. But yeah, I definitely see what you're saying, that there's no reason why that, that correlation should exist unless they are just being forced to defend a position that's, you know, becoming less and less part of the game. Can I do a quick BP annual comment and you guys guess who it is? make Zachary do it it has nothing to do it's so stressful for me it has nothing to do with the Diamondbacks he never played for the Diamondbacks it's not (laughs) he's not gonna play for the Diamondbacks alright here we go this guy has hit a little better than Alexi Ramirez and a little worse than Starlin Castro over the last couple years the difference being that they provide defensive value up the middle and he seldom wields a glove at any position this guy's home to first times can be measured on a tearaway calendar and he routinely ranks among the game's top double play victims. Only a strong December kept his September kept his overall numbers from declining for a third straight season. This guy once made a habit of getting into hitters counts and doing damage. In 12 and 13, 37% of his plate appearances ended in such counts, and his OPS in them was a shade above 1100. In 2014 and 15, those numbers dipped 30% and around 900. When your only asset is the ability to crush baseballs, losing that ability can have damaging consequences. Fortunately, he's only owed an eight-figure salary through 2017. Uh, Brandon Phillips? Mm, good guess. It's not. I got nothing. I have a guess. Go. Is it? Is it Prince Fielder? No. Uh, any position should have... I, uh, Billy Butler? Uh, uh, Billy Butler! It's Billy oh, Butler. Oh, very good. Okay. Uh, let me give you one more. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, all right. If you need to demote a starter to the bullpen and your choices are this guy or a non this guy, go with the former. He's taken the demotion many times and always earns his way back. His ERA in 110 career relief appearances sits at 2.32 and in 75 career starts at 4.03, meaning he's both much better in short bursts and credibly qualified in longer ones. Whether that makes him your starter, as he was for his team on opening day 2015, your swingman or your setup guy depends on your team's needs rather than some universally correct application of an arm like this. He has a pet rodent named Slider, despite not throwing one, which means he has the most untouchable slider in the game. Hmm. Opening day starter last year. Sounds like Ron Bloon to me. I'm trying to think of who we were embarrassed to see as opening day starters. Nothing comes to my mind. 
I'm blank also. It's uh, it's Josh Colmenter. Oh, and it was a Diamondback. I, I, Billy Butler was actually just a misdirect. Yeah, because <laughs> I knew if I went straight to Colmenter, you guys would think I was doing a Diamondback. So I had to make you do the Billy Butler just because I wanted to read that comment and remind everybody that this is a team that one year ago had a swingman starting on opening day. That's the kind of thing that makes you sign Zach Cranky, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So last year, Tony La Russa said he'd be heartbroken if the Diamondbacks didn't finish 500 or above 500, and they didn't. And his heart is presumably in pieces. Although actually, he revised that after the season to say that he was not heartbroken. He was merely disappointed. Do you expect him to be heartbroken again this year? What is your win total projection for the Diamondbacks? Okay. Well, I did some some research on the question that you asked uh, Michael earlier in the week in the Padres podcast about what would you expect the team that wins the offseason to have? Mm-hmm. And so I look back at the ten, the last 10 teams that I thought won the offseason. Uh, I can go through them quick. The 2006 Mets with Wagner, Delgado, LaDuca, 97. 2007 Cubs, the uh, Alfonso Soriano year, 85. 2008 Tigers, the year they, they made the big trade with the Marlins, 74. The 2009 Yankees were the best of these. Uh, they had the probably the top three free agents in baseball. Teixeira, Sabathia, Burnett went on to win the World Series after 103. A couple of Red Sox teams in a row, including one real weak year, 89 and 90, the Lackey year and the uh, Gonzalez and Crawford year. Uh, the 2002, I said the Angels won the offseason, the Pujols year. I didn't, you could say the Marlins maybe did, uh, but they, the Angels were 89. The 2013 Blue Jays, the year they got all the Marlins, 74. Uh, 2014 Yankees with uh, McCann, Ellsbury, Beltran, Tanaka, 84. 2015 Padres, 74. The average is 86. If you <laughs> think it was the the Marlins in uh, 2012, your average is 84. Uh, but one thing about this list is it's getting worse. <laughs> of the of the three with losing records, uh, two of them came in the last three years. And and what I kind of wondered about that is is there you know with with everything that we know about expanded playoffs and the sort of the financial consequences for going from good to great, is there less incentive for a good team to be a great one? Um, or is is this kind of big spender limited to teams that are kind of kind of worried about their standing? So I think it's hard to go too high on this team just because of what we talked about at the very beginning of, of the podcast about how much they're going to be losing. They were a by Pythagorean, they were about an 82-win team last year. Adding Grinke and uh, and Miller is going to help, uh, but but I think they are going to lose a lot in what they've either lost in Inciarte or just uh, regression. So I will, after a very long meandering journey to get there, say 83. <laughs> All right, that's a winning team. Yes, it is. I don't think Dave Stewart would call that a joke. That's a serious statement. Oh, come on. The difference between 83 and 79 is the difference between a joke. 78, I mean. 70, was, was uh, the joke. Well, it's again, it's again, it's not clear that he was referring to Pakoda and not Fangraphs, which had him at 79. It's not. He did say 78, though. Okay, all right. Yeah. Five wins. I mean, I, yeah, look, <laughs> to me, the five wins is enough to say you disagree with one. But a joke, to me, a joke has to be like 12 or 13 wins different. Right. <laughs> All right, uh, Zachary, we would gladly have you on every day for the rest of this podcast's existence, but 
Unfortunately for us, you have other obligations, but thank you for coming on today. I appreciate being on. Thank you for having me. All right. And you can find Zachary on Twitter at Zachary Levine. You can also stay tuned after the break to hear Jeff Paternastro talk to Mike Barron. Another enemy, not even a friend of me. Cause you'll get fried in the end when you pretend to be competing. Cause I just put your mind on pause and I complete when you compare my rhyme with yours. I wake you up and as I stare in your face, you seem stunned. Remember me, the one you got your idea from. But soon you start to suffer. The tuna get rougher when you start to stutter. That's when you had enough of fighting it'll make you choke. You can't provoke, you can't cope. You should have broke because I ain't no joke. In the second half of our 2016 Diamondbacks preview, we are joined by the Diamondbacks pre- and post-game hosts on the Diamondbacks Radio Network. You can also hear him on MLB Network Radio on SiriusXM, and you may even remember him from a certain Fringe Average podcast. It's Mike Farron. Welcome to the show. No one remembers that podcast, Jeff. No one remembers it. It basically didn't exist. More or less, yeah. So we will get right to the most pressing matter for the 2016 Diamondbacks. It was an offseason that made the rest of baseball sit up and take notice. But no more so than when they revealed their new uniform designs defend this sartorial decision. Well, it's different. I mean, I think that's the first thing that comes to mind. I mean, there's not another baseball team that's done something like that. And I don't think that's necessarily bad. Um, you know, I've been fortunate that I've seen, first of all, the, the, regardless of what you think of the regular season uniforms, I don't know if you've had a chance to see the spring training ones, but they are tight. I mean, that Sedona red with the black on the sleeves, um, looks really, really good. So, uh, and I love the hat, like the, the spring training hat with the snake logo, the cartoon snake logo that they brought back is really cool. It's a really, I think it looks great. So in terms of the regular season uniforms, I mean, Nobody has done something like this before, and I think even when you read guys like Todd Random talk about it or, you know, the guys he did at you know, UniWatch, they said, really, you couldn't do that with a team like the Tigers or the Yankees or the Cubs or one of those kind of iconic uniforms. You had to have a newer franchise to do it, and I think there are going to be some of them that don't, that don't resonate very well with fans. I think in the end, you know, the ones that I had to predict the home ones that have the teal outline, I think, are going to be a big hit. Um, I think that the road grays are going to be – I think the road grays are going to change the game for road grays. I think that there are a lot of teams that are going to look at that darker color um, and really like it because it's going to pop on TV. And you know, I haven't seen the uniforms on the field playing, but the pants, you know, they've, they've worn them for workouts and for games, and they look great. So I think those are positives, and I think that there are going to be a lot of people that take shots at the – you know, stuff on the back of the pant leg, but I think as you, you know, it kind of grows on you the more you see it. I was real interested to hear that they felt like there was more negative feedback the last time they changed, changed uniforms when they went to, what was it, Sedona Red and Sonoran Sand. And well, those uniforms were kind of a snooze than there were this last time when things are, you know, very, very different. So, I mean, listen, I, I'll defend them because I think they're different. I think they're unusual, and I think we should always try and be progressive and forward thinking. But I know they're not going to be for everyone. And, you know, there are a lot of combinations to try and keep it straight. You don't know. It might be a trendsetter or it might be just that one year the White Sox wore shorts. No, I, you know, I, I think that they actually, that it's interesting that, that from what I understand that there are other teams, and I don't know if it's necessarily just MLB teams or if it's across sports or college teams, because college teams tend to be fairly adventurous, that have contacted, you know, like Majestic about what was done here and wanting to see you know, potential samples, ideas that they could to try and change. I mean, there's probably, I mean, let's think about it. What are the uniforms right now that are really, like the Rockies 
could use an update, right? The Angels, get, well, the Angels just need to ditch that red on red. That thing is hideous. You know, there are a couple of other teams that you, I'm sure you can go through your mind and go, you know, they could use new uniforms. They could use something that's, that's a little different. And this is a chance for them to be a bit, you know, fresh and unusual without, you know, necessarily taking, you know, deconstructing uniforms in general. So we will get to some of the n- new additions inside the uniforms in a moment. But I want to start with a more familiar face, Paul Goldschmidt. If not for the existence of Bryce Harper, he'd have a case for best hitter in the National League. He got strong MVP consideration last year, but he still feels somehow underrated to me. Is that fair? And if so, why do you think that's the case? 100% it's fair, and I think there's a couple reasons for it. One, the Diamondbacks haven't been on the national scene really since he was a call-up that was playing first base for, for them in the playoffs in 2011. So I think that's probably first and foremost. Second, I mean, I think you know, when you're, you're the best player on a bad team, I think it's easy to overlook look a guy a little bit. Third, I do think that there's something to be said for you know starting your games at 9:40 Eastern time, and it's not that I think that it's East Coast bias, but if somebody's relocated from the East Coast, if it's really hard if you have a job, even one that I was fortunate enough that covered baseball and started at 10 o'clock in the morning, just stay up and watch everything on the West Coast. So, and that was my job, right? So imagine that for a casual fan. So. I do think that there is, uh, uh, and, and he's not a great self-promoter. He's not a tireless self-promoter either. So I think those are reasons why he is overlooked a little bit. But for me, this is one of the five best players in baseball. And I'll give you an example. It was a spring training game today, and, and you know he ran deep counts in each of his first two at-bats, actually all three of his at-bats, but got off balance on a breaking ball and still managed to line out to left. And just his balance, his bat speed, his ability, his work ethic, all of these things make him a superstar level player. And I think MLB is starting to take notice. He's going to be part of the national ad campaign this year, which I think is really exciting. Uh, and I think he's a guy, everybody around the team has said, listen, we know you appreciate Goldschmidt, but you won't really appreciate him until you get to see him every day. And I think that that's another part of it, is unless you're watching this guy, unless you sit down and watch Diamondbacks games for a month, I don't know that you necessarily appreciate how consistent he is in putting together these at-bats, but he's magnificent. I mean, he is a tremendous all-around hitter, um, and he's, what, 28 this year, and that's the best part of it is that he's just now in his prime, and while I understand why projection systems would say that his year this year would maybe take a step back because it was career season, he's also in that range where that could have been a platform year to something bigger and I really would not be surprised if he ended up being a 40-homer guy with the 300 batting average. Oh, yeah, and he stole 20 bases last year, too. So, I mean, there's that. He's a great base runner. Uh, so, it, to me, it's, yeah, he is overlooked. And I, I am hopeful that this is the year that that stops happening and he, he ascends properly to the pantheon of appreciated superstars. Yeah, the Diamondbacks have not exactly been appointment television, even for us MLB TV aficionados. They just haven't been very good. They haven't, they haven't had a drawing card, but that might change this year. We'll keep this one simple. How big a get is Zach Greinke? Enormous. I think it's huge. I, I, if you did watch the Diamondbacks last year, you saw what I thought was a pretty exciting young team, a team that had ability but had fits and starts that you get with a young squad, but played great defense, was aggressive on the base paths, and rarely beat themselves. 
And one of the things that they were short on was starting pitching. Remember, Josh Colmento was the opening day starter for the Diamondbacks last year. Um, and really, early in the season, there was a feeling, geez, you know, Ruby De La Rosa was their best pitcher. Patrick Corbin was still out after Tommy John surgery. And so you have these, you know, tremendous uh, additions, and not just Granky, but Shelby Miller, that kind of push everybody back in the rotation. It takes some pressure off bullpen. And listen, Granky is one of those guys that you just, you have a feeling that if someone's going to age well, it'll be him. Now, he's not all about velocity, although he still throws in the low 90s. It's more about command and execution and deception on his pitches. And those are things that tend to do pretty well with age. Not to mention, he's one of the smarter guys in baseball. And it's a clubhouse that really lends itself to wanting to learn and wanting to get better you know, with advice from, from you know veteran guys. So I think to me, it makes all the sense in the world that, that you know, Granky would be a good fit in that regard and be able to help a, what is a staff that's very young get better. Remember, that there are, as of right now, I believe four guys on the 40-man roster, I think it's four, that, have, that are over the age of 30. Three of them are pitchers, two of them are relievers. Brad Ziegler's 36, Tyler Clifford's 31, Granky is 32. Actually, yeah, and then Tubby Ghostwitch is the, the other one at 31. Everybody else is in their 20s. And that starting rotation, Shelby Miller is 25. This year, he will pitch at 25. Robbie Ray's in his early 20s. Ruby De La Rosa's 27. Pat Corbin's 26, 27. It's a very, very young group, and they're the kind of group that can benefit from working with a guy like Zach Cranky. We'll stick with the starting rotation for a moment. And Diamondbacks front office pushing a lot of their chips from the farm to get Shelby Miller. Is there a feeling now that the farm is that they've they've made their moves and there's a short window to compete here or is there still confidence they can go out and make a move at the deadline or plug a hole internally yeah i mean i think that they they can plug a hole at the deadline for sure because there's not a whole lot of heavy lifting left to do i mean i don't know that you're necessarily going out to add another significant piece of the deadline, I think you're adding more complimentary pieces i mean the, the core group of you know goldschmidt pollock peralta you know, Granky Miller is kind of the same. Corbin, they'll, they'll put Corbin in that mix, are kind of the star-level guys. And and then, you you know, if you – Brad Ziegler's been really good in the closer role. If you did want to get somebody that was more of a closer, I'm not sure that there's any going to be any of those really elite-level Wade Davis, you know, Craig Kimbrell types that are available at the deadline anyway. So you're right. They pushed a lot of chips to the table. But let's not act like this is a – we've got to win this year. You know, all of these guys have at least three years of control left. And as I already mentioned, they're in their 20s. So for this group, there's maybe three years left in the window or four years, which is when Goldschmidt's contract adoptions finally are up, although I wouldn't be surprised if they extend them at some point. But beyond that, they feel like that there's enough in the system and with the youth and the fact that you know they'll have three years of drafting, basically, before a large chunk of these guys get to free agency, that they'll be able to replenish the pipeline. And I think that that's one of the things that gets overlooked, again, is that the oldest regular on this roster is Wellington Castillo at 29. Everybody else is in their 20s, and some of them are in their very early 20s. And, you know, Jim, listen, you know as well as anybody how nonlinear prospect development is. Those kind of young players are certainly guys that can be a big part of a core going forward, and the feeling is that they're going to be competitive for a number of years. Speaking of nonlinear prospect development, 
Diamondbacks' first spring training game. You tweeted out this. First three pitches from Archie Bradley, 94, 95, 94. It's March, but that's pretty nice. Do you think the Diamondbacks are in a position where they'll be counting on meaningful innings in the rotation from him, or is any breakout this year just a bonus? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I mean, he's clearly in competition for the fifth job with Robbie Ray and Zach Godley, but you know, I don't know that they're necessarily counting on him giving them meaningful innings, but there's the very good chance that he will have to give them innings at some point over the course of the year. And I thought he looked very good overall. I mean, he walked the first battery face, and after that, he really settled down. And I thought he did a better job pounding his fastball down in the zone, which, as you know, has been a big issue for him, than I've seen him do in the past. And he showed a good breaking ball. I think for a first effort, it was really terrific. And, you know, the, the velocity went back a little bit when he was out of the stretch. It was more 92, 93. Uh, but there is a lot to like there, I think, with Bradley. I think that there's still, you know, the ability. He's still very young. Again, he's, what, 22. So he's still a very young pitcher. Um, and I think that there's a chance for him to, to provide meaningful innings over the course of the season. But there's not really any pressure on him to do that because, you know, he's not, He's not being counted on as one of the top five. He has a chance to break camp in the rotation if he outpitches Robbie Ray this spring, but they're not married to him being that guy, and I think that's a positive, too, that it allows him the opportunity to, you know, kind of be in the rotation when he's ready, that he doesn't need to be kind of shoehorned in there. So every win is going to count in what looks like a very competitive NL West this year. You already mentioned Brad, Brad Ziegler, and while he's maybe not what we think of when we think of elite closers, he's a known quantity. He's had some success there. I think he's very underrated. But the rest of the pen is a little less underrated, let's say that. Uh, you know, Tyler Clippard is a former closer himself. He struggled down the stretch with the Mets. There was a back issue there, too. Is the bullpen a concern here, or do you think there are enough interesting arms they'll be able to sort of patch together the 6th, 7th, and 8th as needed? Yeah, I mean, I think if you have to look at one, it is the biggest concern kind of on the roster. But, you know, let's not forget Dan Hudson pitched fairly well out of the bullpen last year in his first go-round and was touching 100 late in the season. And, you know, will likely be the 8th inning guy. Clipper will be more towards 7. Andrew Chafin had a very good season. as kind of the top lefty out of the pen, the former Kent State standout. Um, who, I mean, really, I think was a, a valuable weapon uh, in the bullpen for them. So, you know, there are some pieces there that are good. And the other thing is that, you know, from uh, this may get overlooked a lot in prospecting because relievers don't tend to rate very highly on lists, but there is a litany of big arms that are on that farm that are close to the big leagues. Jake Barrett, uh, former closer at Arizona State. Ryan Burr, who they drafted last year, is another former Arizona State closer who touched 100 in, in um, short season ball, and they're very excited about the adjustments that he made to his slider last year um, after he got into pro ball. I think, you know, Jimmy Scherfe's another guy who struggled with walks as a big arm, Enrique Burgos has had a little bit of success in the chase of the big leagues. So there are some options that they have in terms of guys that can bring it um, if they can you know, refine their command. But you also know that, you know, Trying to predict what's happening in bullpens is a bit of a fool's errand at times. And what ends up happening is you end up with a lot of guys who are, you know, able to, you know, kind of put together good success despite the fact that they may not have good peripherals or may not have elite command because that's the nature of pitching for 30 innings over a course of a season. So I think those are all things that, that, um, you know, kind of weigh into it as well. But there are options beyond the, the main guys there. And I think that, the, that, 
you know, that first four, that, that group of four and whoever, you know, ends up being in the rest, whether it's Matt Reynolds, who's finally healthy two years removed from Tommy John, or, uh, you know, so, Sylvia Bracho, who's uh, going to be a stat test favorite because he's like 5'11 and gets swings and misses up in the zone at 91 and 92. I, I think those are guys that certainly can help over the course of the year, but I would also expect that if you're going to pick one spot that might be addressed via trade, um, as you get closer to the deadline, it would be depth in the bullpen. Although, you know, if Grinky's going to go seven every time out, Shelby Miller's going to go seven every time out, with Pat Bourbon's competitiveness, that's going to take a lot of pressure off that group at the end of games, too. You've already said that there's not a lot of holes to fill here. The roster's pretty well set. But with the acquisition this past offseason of Gene Segura, how do you see the middle infield situation shaking out? I don't know. <laughs> that's the... I don't think anybody does. You know, so what this organization values is competition. Uh, and that's they want guys that compete on the field and they want to create competition for positions where they can. And so with the poor offensive seasons from Chris Owings and Nick Ahmed, who had a good first half but a, a very poor second half offensively, Segura gives them that opportunity. You know, there aren't a lot of holes on the roster because there are guys in the organization, but there are uh, – there are a lot of positions that are unsettled. Second, short, third base could be either Drury or Lamb. Left field could be Socrates Brito or Yasmani Tomas. You know, there are legitimate questions as to who will be those guys because they'll let the players that are playing the best and they feel like it gives them the best chance to win break camp. And I think that that's healthy too. Um, I also think that it's going to be able to, to, you know, allow them to try and evaluate Segura against you know, Owings and, and, you know, Ahmed. Ahmed has maybe the best single tool of any of those guys as a defender at shortstop. But Owings is a solid player. Segura certainly still has potential, although it, it's been two and a half years since he's really shown it. Um, and so, you know, from depth, you hope to find some level of success. You're betting on talent. And, and I think, you know, when you bet on talent, I think you, you tend to, you know, end up with better players as a result. I'm interested to see how it shakes out. I was interested about the left field thing as anything, by the way, because you know, Tomas looks terrific in batting practice still. He's lost some weight. You know, he's now two years removed from playing in Cuba, but Brito has a chance to be a real spark plug. I mean, I think he's a little bit underrated when it comes to prospecting. He's, he's, he shows you all the tools. And from what I understand, it, it started showing up on a much more consistent basis last year. And I feel like those grades that kind of see him as a fringy, fringe starter or second division guy might be a little low uh, on someone who has a significant amount of talent and has added some muscle and strength. So much was made in the press over the years about the Diamondbacks, let's say attitude, under former GM Kevin Towers and manager Kurt Gibson. This is Chip Hale's second season in the dugout. What are your impressions of the culture around the team with him at the helm? Uh, Well, I'm incredibly impressed with Chip. I think it goes back to, to what we just talked about with competition, that they want guys to compete. And that goes beyond just Chip to uh, Tony LaRussa and Dave Stewart and you know, basically the entire front office. I mean, that's, the, that's what they want. That's, they want competitors. And they want guys who aren't, you know, every player wants to win. Not everyone wants to compete, really relish the opportunity to compete. Those are the guys that they're looking for. I think it's a, it's a culture, at least around the team and around the players, that mimics kind of what the organization has um, on more the business side, where it's extremely well lauded for their work in the community and for uh, you know the the job that they do in being a positive you know, part of Phoenix 
Um, you know, Derek Hall, the team president, deserves a lot of credit for that. Uh, but I think the players kind of mimic that, and I think they've built a culture on both sides where the players are accessible, the players are, are you know, desire to win, desire to compete, and want to play hard, and they kind of be a team that can be embraced by, you know, not just a fan base, but by, by teams that they're playing. I mean, it was one of the things that Zach Greinke was really excited about when Arizona got involved. I mean, the first thing he said to his agent was, oh, gosh, they're really good defensively, and I really like the way they play and the way they ran the bases. So those little things that I think guys who are really hardcore baseball players, you know, the players who are also fans or students of the game, certainly embrace. And I think you know, a lot of that comes from Chip. He's an incredibly positive guy. That coffee needs Chip Hale. I mean, he's got so much energy. And I think he's, Joe, he's a great story, too, in that he was a manager in waiting for a long, long time. And I haven't talked to him about it, but I guarantee there's a part of him that thought he was never going to get this opportunity after interviewing for six or seven manager jobs. And he relishes every minute of it. But it's a it's a good it's a good culture. He's a terrific manager. I think a terrific young manager, at least in terms of major league experience. And he's built a hell of a coaching staff around him too. I mean, it's rare when you see a team that has it's kind of building that has as much turnover as the Diamondbacks did from last year. But Turner Ward left to go to the Dodgers. And, um, and Green ended up getting hired as a manager of the Padres and changed out the pitching coach. Now, Stottlemyre Jr. wanted to be close to his dad, um, so took a job with the Mariners. But they bring in Mike Butcher, who was a great pitching coach of the Angels, Dave Magadan, who's got a really good reputation as a hitting instructor in both you know, Texas and in, in Boston, um, and build, a, uh, I think, a, a sensational staff that works really hard. And bringing back Matt Williams, too. And I'll tell you what, the difference between Having lived in D.C., and we've talked a lot, I know, on your Mets podcast a lot about this, watching the difference between Matt Williams as Mets, as as Nationals manager, and watching him as Diamondbacks third base coach, it's like night and freaking day. Because Matt is so engaged, so energized, he loves to teach, and you really feed off that, and you can see the players feed off it as well. So we'll let you go on this. For those of our listeners that may not follow the Diamondbacks as closely as you do, who is an under-the-radar name? I know we've named 90% of the roster and a lot of prospects already, but we'll, we'll go with this anyway, that might end up playing a key role if Arizona pushes their California neighbors for a playoff spot in 2016. You know, I'll throw Brandon Drury on there because he's the one name we haven't really talked about. But he lost a lot of weight this winter um, in an effort to try and you know, make himself more viable as a second baseman in addition to a third baseman. He's got some thump in the bat. Um, he's a pretty good defender. He's a terrific athlete, and he's got a great work ethic. His, his nickname is actually Drulo because he works out with Troy Tulowitzki in the winter. I think that's a guy that, you know, again, gets overlooked a little bit. I think he's got a chance to be a really solid contributor offensively. And, you know, I think Jake Lamb is going to be you know, most likely the third baseman. He, he gives you some left-handed balance. But Drury's going to play a pretty con- considerable role, I think, over the course of the season if the Diamondbacks are going to get to where they want to go. Mike Farron? the Diamondbacks Radio Network and MLB Network Radio on SiriusXM. You can follow him on Twitter at Mike underscore Farron. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Jeff. Take care. Okay, that is it for the Diamondbacks preview. Thank you to Zachary and Mike for coming on. You can send us emails at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. We'll be doing a listener email show next Wednesday. You can also join our Facebook group now with more than 3,500 members at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. You can pre-order our book, The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. comes out in two months, May 3rd, but if you pre-order on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or anywhere else you pre-order books, 
you could get it a little bit in advance of the publication date, and it helps us to show that people are going to buy our book before it actually comes out. It's the story of how Sam and I spent last summer running the Sonoma Stompers, an independent league baseball team. You can also rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes, and you can support our sponsor, The Play Index, by going to baseballreference.com, using the coupon code BP, and getting the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. Have a nice weekend. We will be back on Monday with the preview for the Texas Rangers. 